I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, this is our last episode before the Rings of Power show comes out next week. Yeah, and we're going to dive into a lot of what this show is going to be about, the Second Age of Middle-Earth. So for those of you that are wishing to avoid any spoilers, um, (laughs) now is probably a good time to tune out. Yeah. Uh, If you haven't already, because I know we've been pretty loose with uh, spoilers, even for people that haven't read these books. But if you're listening, it's most likely that you want to know what's going to happen in the show, or at least kind of some of the textual roots of what we're going to see. Yeah. But yeah, we've uh, wrapped up all the legends of the first age of Middle-earth and now going into the second age. Much like the first age, all three of these ages of Middle-earth end with the overthrow of a dark lord, but now we're getting into a new dark lord. Uh, Yeah. A familiar face from the Baron and Luthien chapter, uh, Sauron. Yeah, the sexiest dark lord. Yeah. In my opinion. (laughs) And this is, yeah, this is really his uh, time to shine. Yeah, this is Um, his heyday. I was thinking of how we should really divide up and talk about this episode, and I just thought, well, Tolkien has already laid it out. So I'm going to refer to a letter of his that if you haven't read, I think you should read. It's called The Waldman Letter, or Letter 131 in his book of letters, where he wrote to his publisher and was really explaining his mythology of the Silmarillion and the later ages. And he lays out the three major themes of this age, where he says, The three main themes are thus the delaying elves that lingered in Middle-earth, Sauron's growth to a new dark lord, master and god of men, and Numenor Atlantis. So I just think we should go through all three of those and uh, talk about them. To prep for this episode, we read the two uh, stories at the end of the Silmarillion, the Akalabeth and of the Rings of Power. We also read some excerpts from Unfinished Tales, uh, including parts from Alderian and Arendis, as well as the history of Galadriel and Kiliborn. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, these bits will have the most um, relevance to the show. Sure. And also to those major themes that Tolkien was talking about. So yeah, we're going to start off with the uh, elves of Middle-earth, the Noldor, who are still deciding to linger there. Yeah. Honestly, the Noldor have never given up on the idea that Middle-earth is, you know, open domain for them to take over. Yeah, I mean, they came over there and then immediately had to deal with Morgoth, but that was like a war that lasted hundreds of years. Right. So they're just now getting to enjoy uh, peace. Sure. And so they're just like, yeah, why would we leave now? Yeah, um, like this is what we were after the entire time. <laughs> yeah, this sure. This is why sure we left we, Valinor. Yeah, like sure we didn't win back the Silmarils, but right. um, that was more the Feanorians stuff anyway. So we get a few chief characters here. We get uh, Gil-galad, who is the High King of the Noldor, the last High King of the Noldor, actually. We have his herald, uh, Elrond, the half-elven, who, as we know, chose to be immortal. We have Galadriel, who was a pretty prime mover in that rebellion against the Valar. And we have Celebrimbor, who is the son of Curufin, the son of Feanor. And uh, so he's kind of the last of the the Feanorian side of the family Mm -hmm. lingering around here. 
And yeah, they're all pretty committed to being in Middle Earth. Um, Gilgalad sets up his kingdom of Linden in the new shores that are made uh, from where Balerion sunk into the sea. Galadriel and Celebrimbor go to this realm of uh, Aragion, which, you know, they built up, which is pretty near Moria. And uh, Elrond is chilling with Gilgalad. I think most important of that list, as far as like really getting to the core of what the Noldor feel about Middle Earth is Galadriel. Right. And and we had read the short little conversation uh, between her and Celebrimbor called the Yelisar, which yeah. is in Unfinished Tales, which I think gives a lot of great insight into her state of mind here in the Second Age after the overthrow of Morgoth. This is a common theme, I feel like, through the entire time we've been talking about the Silmarillion, but especially the last, like, five chapters of the Silmarillion. Um, if you really want to understand the story presented in the Silmarillion, go read something else. <laughs> because the actual, like, vibes and real interactions kind of mentioned in the Silmarillion um, are way better explained and fleshed out elsewhere. Yeah, right. There's this additional material out there that I think helps flesh out the Silmarillion, which in its mode is like a very historical text. Right. It's very, again, removed from the human emotion um, or elvish emotion, I sure. guess. But little stories like this, you know, we get some dialogue between characters. We really get to, even though there's nothing like a lot happening, um, we really do get a sense of how they feel about the world at that stage. And Galadriel is like, really, she wants to stay in Middle Earth. She's like very much against going back home. But she's also very grieved at the mortality of Middle Earth. Yeah. And she expresses this to Celebrimbor in this conversation and is basically like, oh, you know, it, it never makes up for it. The spring coming again never makes up for the death in the fall and like the winter that happens here. And he's sort of like, yeah, I mean, that's Middle Earth. <laughs> yeah. He's like, how how else can it be for us elves that cling to Middle Earth? Right. Um, and this is really interesting hearing from her, considering what we know of Lothlorien, when our crew of merry fellowship hobbits and elves and dwarves and humans come on their way through Lothlorien, and it feels like time stops there. And um, yeah, and that they're transported back to the Second Age, essentially. Right. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and this is where we start to see the germs of, you know, Celebrimbor's desire to heal the lands that have been left desolate after these wars with Morgoth, but also to preserve the beauty that the elves have gifted to Middle-earth. Yeah. So yeah, but there does seem to be this, like, this is an unnatural thing. Sure. That they're desiring. Yeah. And of course, this is what Sauron will ensnare them with. I think it's really interesting the difference between the immortality of the elves and the mortality of man juxtaposed with kind of the fate of Arda. Within the corruption of Morgoth, Arda exists in this imperfect way where the only place that the elves would possibly be content living is Valinor, but Mm -hmm. for so many reasons that, you know, we've discussed through the entirety of the Silmarillion, it, it doesn't satisfy everyone to just, like, live with the Valar. Yeah, I mean, the elves still have this pride, um, especially the Noldor, and Galadriel, probably the greatest amongst them. So, yeah, you're right that they have this immortality 
in which they could, you know, if Middle Earth was not stained in the way that it was, um, could enjoy more. But instead, that's for men who actually yeah. do not have the immortality to enjoy it. Right, exactly. Men eventually, like, completely leave the realm. Yeah, the entire circles of Arda, <laughs> right. you know, of existence. Yeah, yeah. it just seems pretty, like, is there any happy, like, is there any contentedness <laughs> to be found just on this kind of metaphysical level with these two races? Yeah, well, I think there is. The only thing is it's just not lasting. Yeah. It's, everything is fleeting. Right. And, you know, that, and I think Tolkien kind of points that that kind of makes it, the more beautiful because it mm-hmm. is so brief. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love these differences between elves and men and how they perceive the world and, you know, their fates and, uh, and beauty. Yeah. Unfortunately, the elves desire for wisdom and unending beauty um, <laughs> is the way that Sauron is able to ensnare them specifically Celebrimbor. Right. Um, which there's not a lot written about him. And I find it really fascinating because, He's such an integral character in this whole drama. Yeah. All we really get is that he had a like dwarvish obsession with crafts, which makes sense given his family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they are the Noldor. They are the people of Aule. Right. We also hear that he wants to rival the works of his grandfather, Feanor. <laughs> which like, even just in concept, it's sort of like, bruh. <laughs> why would you try? Like, yeah. why? Like, even if you succeeded, like, that's not a good thing necessarily well yeah and i've always thought there's like kind of two ways to approach his character it's either like he creates the rings of power to rival feanor's three silmarils and it's born out of feelings of his own pride and glory to rival feanor mm-hmm. and you know and that is a very feanorian family trait <laughs> um or you know the more uh, nicer view of him is that he really looks at the destruction wrought by the Silmarils and the wars in Beleriand and was probably pretty traumatized by it. And he's now dedicating the rest of his life to healing the wrongs of his family and all the destruction that his grandfather's jewels caused. So I like to see Celebrimbor as the redemptive spirit of the House of Feanor. But it's just that desire for redemption is perverted by Sauron. Right. And and also it's just like, my buddy didn't understand tragic flaws. And that, like, you know, if, if you're trying to do great, I mean, watch out. Yeah, I mean, that's watch just, out. you know, that's the common theme here is like anyone who creates anything in this world. <laughs> is um, like super exposed to sin or yeah. like to corruption. Right. And I just, I find this so sad because I do feel like he approached this with somewhat selfless um, intentions. And unfortunately, Sauron was just using this as a way to control the elves. So yeah, let's talk about him for a little bit in the Second Age. Yeah. Uh, Big fan. I love Second Age Sauron. I think he's like just as bad and as awesome at being bad as like any Dark Lord could ever be. Yeah, Sauron at pretty much any stage in this part of the story, uh, he's pretty much the snake in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Um, And I I love uh, that kind of trope. And I don't know, I honestly think he sees himself as a Promethean-like figure. Mm -hmm. Tolkien makes it clear in his letters that Sauron, even though he was fairly evil in the first age, he did side with Morgoth, and Morgoth did corrupt him. 
you know, we hear he repented, even though it was kind of out of fear. But Tolkien writes in his letters pretty clearly that he started out with fair intentions. Right. That he wanted to just order Middle-earth, and he thought that the Valar had abandoned it. Which, like, I mean, he's not that wrong. Yeah, I mean... They did what they had to do. They overthrew Morgoth, and now everyone's like, cool, evil's defeated. Well, and it's like they overthrew Morgoth after, like, how much pain and suffering on behalf of men and elves. Like, it took a lot. It took a fucking ton to get the Valar to jump at anything going on in Middle-earth. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting that the whole reason that Sauron escapes is because the Valar, or especially Aonwe acting as herald of the Valar, gives him free will to return or stay in middle earth and he chooses to stay this reminds me a lot of the uh unchaining of melkor in valinor mm-hmm. where they gave him the choice to like are you are you done with your evil um you know there is this like uh desire to give these people a second chance which i feel like was important to tolkien this idea of like forgiveness and wiping the slate clean yeah except that anytime like, I mean, these are the two characters given the most, like, chance for redemption. And Morgoth and Sauron just, like, n- they don't care. Like, eventually they end up in their old ways again. Well, yeah, and the whole thing is, like, once they start down this road, it kind of dominates the so, so spirit. Does, <laughs> does Tolkien actually believe in forgiveness? Or is he like, no, forgiveness is folly. To forgive and forget is, like, absolute folly. Well, I don't know. I think he draws the distinction between, like, Melkor and Aule. They both desired to have their own things, but it was like Aule was able to, with the dwarves, again, kind of repent and submit that to... And he was willing to destroy his work. I guess the other thing is, like, in that case, the judge is a Luvatar. In the cases of Sauron and Melkor, the judges are the Valar. And they are significantly less like astute (laughs) with their with their judgment of people um but yeah but like Aule, you know he lays he's ready to raise his creation to the ground yeah he's willing to destroy it for luvatar and uh melkor is just never willing to destroy what you know he is all about his own creation um which he can never have and he's eternally frustrated by but um but yeah so I find it very interesting, uh, Second Age Sauron, not just because he is the snake in the Garden of Eden, but because I truly think that he wasn't supposed to start out that way. He truly did want to help the inhabitants of Middle-earth to have their own paradise. I think he just kept encountering these frustrations of free will. And so he was like, well, the only way I can truly accomplish my designs is to eliminate these other people's free will right and and i mean it is important to note that he is the strongest being in middle earth melian has left he's the only member of the maya kind of like roaming free in yeah middle and earth. even of the Maiar um period he was one of the most powerful so um yeah he's very powerful at this point and he hasn't like used up enough of his power like morgoth had right so um I think Tolkien even writes that Sauron in the Second Age was more powerful than Morgoth at the end of the first. And, you know, whereas Morgoth was really trying to, uh, just through sheer military might and fear and tyranny, 
uh, overcome the peoples of Middle Earth, Sauron kind of gets this idea. I'm going to like do this subtly. Yeah. And uh, he sees the elves' desire to um, have this beauty in Middle Earth and to stay there. And he's like, I can use this to my advantage. And so, you know, he uh, comes as this divine benefactor teaching Celebrimbor and the elves of Eregion his magic arts to create these rings of power. And secretly he makes the one to bring them all under under his vigilance. And it almost goes according to plan, except for the fact that Celebrimbor immediately knows he's betrayed when yeah. he makes the one. And so, you know, the seven rings bring about uh, the greediness of the dwarves. And that greediness and their treasure hoards are what brought about the attraction of the dragons, which leads mm-hmm. us into the Hobbit, um, obviously. Right. And then the nine rings were probably the most successful. Sauron tempted these nine kings and warriors of men with uh, immortality, and they became the ringwraiths that featured so prominently in The Lord of the Rings. But the three rings Celebrimbor um, hid from Sauron. He gave them to Galadriel and Gilgalad. Gilgalad gave one of them to Círdan of the Havens. Mm-hmm. He later gives that to Gandalf. Yeah. Um, Gilgalad gives his to Elrond. So then the later three bearers are Gandalf, Elrond, and Galadriel in the Third Age. So Sauron definitely has some uh, victories here with the Rings of Power. Um, yeah. But, but the loss of the three is really what kicks off this whole war between him and the elves, in which... Um, Celebrimbor's realm is destroyed and he himself is tortured and killed. His body is hung upon a pole and used as a war banner um, shot through with orc arrows. It's probably one of the most gruesome scenes of Tolkien's whole work. Yeah, I mean, this section reminds me of my like least favorite scene in The Lord of the Rings, which is when Saruman is in the Shire. And it, it, it's just like, equally as gruesome and kind of out of nowhere you know it's just this like suddenly gore (laughs) yeah pretty haunting imagery here and i don't know how much tolkien read bram stoker like i'm sure he did but i've always been struck by the similarities between sauron and dracula yeah absolutely i mean there's some pretty overt ones like he turns into like a wolf and also a (laughs) vampire bat like uh sauron in the first age he's this uh dark lord that wants to to dominate other people's wills. Also, he was inspired by Vlad the Impaler. Right. <laughs> and I think yeah. we're seeing a little bit of that inspiration here, if like if that is true. But again, I, I can't imagine that Dracula had no part to play in oh, Sauron. Are you kidding me? Yeah. But um, also, like, just when I thought I couldn't like Sauron more, he's a vampire boy. So. Of course, he's exactly your type. <laughs> but this war begins, and um, it is only not devastating to the to the elves because of the help of Numenor. Yeah, the Numenorians um, come to their aid. And years later, you know, during their uh, decline and fading, you know, their king brings Sauron back to Numenor as a hostage and prisoner. In which, again, he's just that snake in the Garden of Eden whispering in the king's ear saying like, hey, this gift of death, like, don't you think it's kind of bullshit? Yeah, and I mean, they already do, obviously, but he's just like, my Lord Morgoth can uh, help you with that. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great transition to start talking about Numenor yeah. and kind of the Atlantis mm-hmm. story of this legendary. Um, right. As we were talking about the 
mortality of like elves and men a little bit earlier. I think, you know, what I can't get over is so much of the Silmarillion is about pride and kind of where it gets you, which seems to be nowhere. Um, But I personally, as a reader, kind of find that virtuous like story a hard pill to swallow when at every turn the Valar are the ones sort of unknowingly dangling these carrots. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Numenor's existence is ridiculous to me. I think now we're starting to see the formula Tolkien is following in his myth cycle, because this is extremely similar to the Valar inviting the elves to come live in Valinor, (laughs) which Almo warned them about. And now they're inviting these mortals to live not in Valinor, but the closest mortals can live to Valinor. Yeah, it's like kind of like, what what did you think was going to happen? Did you really think they were going to be content with this gift of death? <laughs> All these years just within sight of the lands of like the deathless lands? Yeah, that's absolutely, it's wild to me that they thought that would not end in absolute failure. Yeah. Um, and granted, I mean, this is just like mankind's just misunderstanding of their fates, which that misunderstanding is was brought about by Morgoth. But... It's hard not to sympathize with them when they say, like, you know, you guys just live forever, but what's required of us is a blind trust without assurance of what will happen to us. So we just have to have faith that everything is going to turn out okay. And granted, some people do keep that faith and they're called the faithful. My problem with that, though, is that it's not like they're getting this information directly from the Valar. Um, being like, hey, like, this is what death's all about. Right. They're They're hearing most of this from the elves. Secondhand, you know. Who, like, don't fucking know shit about death. Like, really, on a molecular level, do not understand death. And I mean, I would say even the Valar don't understand death. No, yeah, definitely. Um, Only Iluvatar, I think, does. So, and men. And that's what they share. And that's what their relationship is. But, um, but like, what a fucking bum deal, you know? Like, oh, oh, cool. So I've got all these beautiful immortal elves who say that they are jealous of my gift of death when they themselves do not understand the first fucking thing like galadriel can't even deal with the changing of the seasons she can't deal with like a plant going dormant over winter and people like her are going to be telling humans that like don't worry just like get the death is a gift just keep the faith you know like <laughs> that's insane um no it it does seem very uh you know it seems keep calm and carry on yeah um i think a lot about in the tale of aragorn and arwen um when aragorn finally dies and arwen is like if this is the gift of death it's actually pretty bitter to receive <laughs> Um, yeah and it's like she's like i I always thought mankind was stupid and just kind of weak for like whining about death so much but now she's like experiencing the death of her husband and she's just like this sucks um this is why i hate the elves i really do not relate to the elves very much at all i mean i don't think you're supposed to i mean they are just this uh i mean other than the fact of like the classic tale of pride and fall yeah um, yeah that's relatable but again like fanor's relatable (laughs) You know, the whole thing is like, we're not supposed to be at home here on this world. And this is, you know, their place. And so they just exist on a different plane than us, essentially. Um, 
Well, I mean, I, I guess like something I think about a lot is like the elves woke in Starlight in Middle Earth. Like they they woke in Middle Earth. Clearly, some right. part of the plan was for them to live in Middle Earth, and it is only because of the corruption of Morgoth yeah. that they were ever taken from Middle Earth. Well, again, I think they would have been fine if they just chained up Melkor and Valinor and then let them go free in Middle Earth. Yeah. Again, the Valar, just like, I cannot. I, I don't, I, I think I don't under, it's hard for me to take the lessons about men and elves when all of the lessons should be learned by the Valar and they keep making the same fucking mistake over and over again. Yeah. It's like, you should be smarter than men and elves. So like, why are you uh, falling in the same traps? So Sauron comes to Numenor, and this confusion about the very nature of death, uh, Sauron sees an opening here, and he's just like, "Um, I'm going to create a whole religion to my master. I'm going to displace Iluvatar, say that he is a just phantom created by the Valar. Which is, I mean, pretty like... Again, men just have to have this blind trust that he exists. Yeah. And, uh, but he's just like, no, the only thing that exists out there is the abyss and the darkness and only the Lord of darkness can give you what you want. I literally love it. (laughs) And the freedom that you want. And they're like, who's that? And he's like, well, it's, it's Melkor. I don't know. I love how Sauron is using his master's name to gain power. Right. I feel like Sauron kind of just abandoned Morgoth after the War of Wrath. He was like, I think if he was truly loyal, he would have fought with him kind of to the end but like i mean somehow he escaped yeah and and basically like we don't hear about sauron with morgoth after baron and luthien all um, we know is that morgoth was kind of wrathful with him for and like he like should be it was like he fucked up pretty he, big you were like the watched tower on the border of my land to like make sure no one gets through here and this dude got through here and his uh, elf chick and they stole one of my Silmarils. <laughs> yeah, they like really fucked shit up. And then that Silmaril is what led to the <laughs> Valar forgiving yeah. the Noldor and arresting me. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, but it, I, I do think it's like really interesting that it, we don't really know how he feels about Morgoth. Yeah, and- we can only kind of read between the lines and maybe it's just my own headcanon, but I like to think that his master came down pretty hard on him and he was like, wait, why have I been serving you? And then yeah. he was overthrown and he was like, yeah, you were kind of stupid the way you went about dispersing your power into all of like the substance of the earth. And then this leads to Sauron. He was like, instead of dispersing my power, I'm going to concentrate it in the ring. Right. Yeah. Let me, well, let me tell you why I don't think that is a like faulty headcanon as he's building this religion in Numenor. Um, which becomes a death cult. They're sacrificing. Making sacrifices to Melkor to um, free them from death. There's no, like, mention of that actually empowering Morgoth, you know? like No, oh, yeah. It's it's literally just, like, a mind control tactic that, that Sauron is employing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of, like, the binding of human will through, like, and, terrible acts. It's, like, I a mean, very common cult thing to exactly. do. Exactly. And also, I mean, just the practical reasons, the people they're killing are the faithful who are the only people who are speaking out against Sauron. Right. So it's just, like, a political agenda there as well. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, this is a story in which magic and power exists. If Morgoth was actually being empowered by that, 
we would know about it. Yeah. And and but Sauron's not preparing for the return of Morgoth in yeah. any type of well, way. Well, I think we see his true intentions when like the Valar start uh killing Numenorians with their lightning bolts and Sauron uh climbs the temple and defies the lightning and now men are calling him a god. Right. I mean, and you have to think about this in terms of they think Melkor at this point is God. Right. And there are other earlier versions in the Silmarillion where they say that they thought that Sauron was Morgoth returned Mm -hmm. to the world. So he's like a messiah. Yeah, he's like this, again, I think Sauron is analogous to the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. You know, Morgoth is like Satan, um, but he is this preacher of the, the good word of Morgoth. Right. But now he is like, I am Morgoth in flesh incarnate (laughs) yeah Um, i am god (laughs) and i mean to be honest like i think another supporting factor is that sauron doesn't do anything the way that morgoth did it you know like he's nowhere not until the war of the ring no yeah like he's Um, nowhere near as petty and i mean even in the war of the ring he's trying to make deals with gandalf and and aragorn through the mouth of sauron he's not like trying to just like rule everything and pervert everything he's like methodically and kind of bureaucratically yeah uh going about setting up his feudal system well and in morgoth's ring in the history of middle earth series tolkien lays out the intentions and motivations of morgoth versus sauron and then morgoth basically wants to he has this very nihilistic view where he wants to eventually just destroy everything Mm -hmm. so that he can start anew and have his own creation sauron doesn't object to the uh creation of the world he just wants to control it right so again i think that's what we're seeing with the mouth of sauron there later it's like he doesn't want to destroy the world of men he wants to be king and god of men and that's the really big difference between him and morgoth the numenorians eat up what he's serving out. And of course they do. They've received no fucking guidance from any other of the Ainur. Yeah. Sauron is the Ainur that they know. Yeah, I mean, the only people the speaking Ainu. out against him are like the lords of Andunie, um, led by like Amandiel and his son Elendil, who are kind of the heroes of this story. And Elendil's sons, uh, Asildor and Anarion. But they're just not enough. They're like, kind of the suppressed minority in Numenor right. at this point. It's kind of too late. Numenor's fallen so low in their moral decay. They finally listen to Sauron and they uh, go to um, try to go to war with the Valar and demand immortality from them. Which is hilarious, like in the scope of everything. Like when you know right. how powerful the Valar are. But, I mean, I think that just goes to show you the pride of uh, our Farazhan and the Numenorians. And yeah. I mean, he really is the mortal equivalent of Feanor Mm -hmm. in these tales, I would say. Um, Similar to how Morgoth came in captivity to paradise, Mm -hmm. was let go, um, was able to corrupt the greatest amongst them. Um, But the only difference is Morgoth's corruption was to get Feanor to get the elves to leave Middle-earth, or to leave Valinor. But uh, here Sauron is getting these mortals to try to take over Valinor for themselves. Which is like, never gonna work yeah um even like uh, even as powerful as the numenorians are they're they're more powerful than like general humans but yeah um and well there's this interesting comment that you know they're not called the undying lands because it gives you the power of the undying it's called the undying lands because the undying live there and it's like hinted several times that 
just even the very air there is not fit for mortals. And the way Tolkien almost describes it, it almost sounds like space, <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> if mankind goes to space, yeah, there's no oxygen. You can't breathe. You're going to die. Yeah, at the very least, their their aging process and death process is going to speed up a lot. Yeah, exactly. I love this part because like, oh, fuck the Valar. I just fucking can't stand them. So basically, you know, the Numenorians show up. They're all like blown up and out of proportion because of Sauron. The, the Valar are like, uh, I don't want to handle this shit. Like... And it, I just, I'm frustrated. Like, these Valar are the most childish of all of these creations of Iluvatar. And um, they're basically like, well, um, uh, Luvatar, uh, I guess it's up to you now, like, what you want to do about these, <laughs> like, children. And, I mean, I love it. Like, they're just like, Dad, you're in charge. Yeah, they, um, like, they totally step back. They're like, I don't know what you want us to do about this. And it's like, you kind of fucking did this. Like, you put them in this position where, like, of course, like, you put them in a position to fall this hard without giving them any explanation mm-hmm. for their fates or for anything, without, like, listening to them, whatever. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox about the Valor, but immediately Iluvatar just fucking levels it. Yeah, he just opens up this giant, <laughs> giant riff in the ocean, and Numenor goes down. Dump it. This one's trash. I love that passage. It's like, it keeps going on. It's like, all oh, it's women, and it's children, and it's art, and it's lore, and I, it was gone forever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty brutal. Pretty Old Testament totally. godlike. Um, it's pretty awesome. And he even like changes the whole world from like a uh, like flat disc. Like he folds back the edges, makes the world round, so that when oh, yeah. people sail west, they only come back to the place where they started. And he removes Valinor from the physical realm. The best fucking thing anyone could have done. I I think at this point, even if it is very like kind of on the edge of cruel, what happens to the whole of Numenor. Um, I'm just glad someone's making some real decisions around here. <laughs> Jesus, like, you yeah, know, where like, was Iluvatar making these decisions in the first day? I, <laughs> I know exactly. I, I think the removal of Valinor, fucking key, man. That's awesome. Like, oh, it's not just this place you can get to. Like, yeah, yeah. it's you know, and it's still available for the elves to sail there sure. if they want. Um, again, they're just in their stubbornness and pride, clinging to Middle Earth. But this is also like an attack on Sauron, who is on Numenor, and this is his first major death of his physical form, and he loses all the ability to take a fair form after this when he goes down into the abyss. So Sauron was like pretty happy that the Numenorians had sailed away and were gone. Um, Numenor was going to be the seat of his throne in this new world order. Um, (laughs) But yeah, because it sinks down, he goes down with it. Yeah. And he really did not expect Iluvatar to get that involved. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know. I, I, I love this as like an almost moment where like Iluvatar kills Sauron. He's yeah. just like, fuck you. You're you're out. Right. Because of his nature as a Maya spirit, he's still able to recreate a body. But as we know, these beings have finite power. Sure. So he's spent a lot of his power in this fair form that he was able to corrupt so many elves and then later the Numenorians. But now he can't do that anymore. Now right. everyone has seen him for what he is, and he can only be a dark lord. 
Yeah. Um, Voldemort rules. He has no nose now. So. Yeah. So he goes back to Mordor, rebuilds up his kingdom. But as, you know, is often the case with these Dark Lords and especially with Sauron, his plans are like 75, 80, 90 percent successful. But then there's like always that little (laughs) bit that gets through. Yeah. And um, much like the Three Rings escaped him, the uh, Faithful escaped him. Mm -hmm. And they come to Middle Earth and found the realms of Gondor and Arnor. And then they team up with the elves of uh, Gilgalad, and they've had enough of Sauron's shit, and they march to Mordor and have a pretty epic confrontation, the uh, the War of the Last Alliance, which is the last time that elves and men and, and the size of these armies really fight together. Right. But yeah, the age ends with Sauron's forces being defeated, and Elendil and Gilgalad uh, fighting... Sauron himself, um, after his forces are defeated, he comes out and now fights them in hand-to-hand combat, which reminds me a lot of Fingolfin and Morgoth. Yeah, totally. The grappling. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think it's very interesting to note that, well, if you follow the published Silmarillion version that Gilgalad is Fingon's son, Gilgalad and Elendil are both descendants of Fingolfin. Sure. Now fighting um, to the death Sauron's physical form. And I just think that's really cool. And um, But they're both killed, but they both do kill his bodily form. And then a sealed door kind of comes up to the defeated Sauron's body. And he's like, you killed my brother. You killed my father. I'm going to have your ring as like payment for that. And <laughs> yeah, Elrond and Círdan are standing by and they're just like, you should probably destroy that. Yeah, this is the famous scene from the very beginning of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Which I don't think they were actually in the cracks of doom. And, you know, people are like, why didn't Elrond just push him in? No. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with that theory. But I think they're <laughs> they're they're more out on the slopes yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Um, whatever. But, yeah, again, like, Morgoth was overthrown, but Sauron escaped. So evil was allowed to endure. Right. Sauron is overthrown, but the ring, ring wasn't destroyed. Yeah. So it was allowed to endure. So again, much like how Sauron is having trouble totally defeating the good people, the good people are having trouble really defeating evil. Oh my God. And it's just kind of this constant bouncing back and forth um, throughout the ages. So that wraps up the second age of Middle Earth. And that tells you pretty much what we might see in this show. And I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting that the second age is the one that Tolkien wrote the least about. But a um, lot of stuff happens. No, it. I know. It's um, He just wrote about the major historical events and the major geopolitical leaders. We don't know about the average Middle Earth person. So that's kind of the POV that a lot of these new characters in Rings of Power we're going to see is like people that were living through these times. Right. Um, to help flesh that out more, which I think you kind of need to tell that story. Um, Unless you just want someone reading from a textbook well, to be the story. Yeah, you know? yeah. Let me tell you, if you haven't read the Silmarillion, you don't want that to be the story. Um, having just read it, I, I don't know. I have a lot of frustrations. Maybe we'll do like a whole recap episode sometime. On or just maybe a rant episode. A about. rant episode <laughs> about the Silmarillion. I'm sure I've ranted plenty. And I'm sure people who love the Silmarillion um, hate the things that I'm saying. But... A lot of great ideas, not the way to present this information. Yeah, your issue is more with the execution. Oh, absolutely. Oh, all of these ideas. First of all, all of these ideas 
the like 90% of them are just like epic mythology kind of yeah. repackaged. So of course I love it. It's fucking classic. Yeah. But th- this presentation is like literally the bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. Like it is the opposite I've, of what I would choose. Yeah. I just think unless you're Tolkien himself or into the things that Tolkien was into, you know, the study of uh, languages, specifically a very anthropological look at that and how cultures create languages. I don't think you're going to be too into um, the mode in which it's written, but yeah. And I I, I didn't even feel this way about anything until after the great tales, after you get through the great tales, it just like gets so bone dry. Well, I mean, again, we're getting near the end, which he was constantly rewriting. (laughs) So that's why it does seem to end very abruptly. Um, the tale of Arendil was the one that he was reworking the most and the one that changed the most over the years, I would say. But yeah, I, I think if you're just reading the published Silmarillion, you're only getting the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, it's just, totally. um, there's other material out there in the history of Middle Earth series that I think is essential to understanding the whole of the Silmarillion. And if you're just reading that, you're just basically getting this dry outline of this dry and very extensive right. outline. Um, and I want to be clear, like, that's not gatekeeping. <laughs> that's just, like, when we when we say that the Silmarillion is dry, I think people think, like, oh, because this is what I thought. When you would be like, oh, it's kind of dense, it's kind of dry. I was thinking, like, oh, like, stale bread. Okay, but, like, sometimes you can, you can still make stale bread into something. Like, yeah. sure, no. The Silmarillion is dry, like a bunch of salt, flour, and sugar spilled on a countertop. And you're like, what the fuck do I do with this? Like, this is like nothing. This is like the vague outline of some type of baked good, but it is not, there's no chemical reaction here. There's nothing composite about this. And to pick up on that metaphor, I would say this uh, supplementary material that I'm talking about, like the Lay of Lathian, the the Lost Tale, uh, Fall of Gondolin, the, the Children of Hurin novel, I would say that's kind of like a loaf of bread. Now, some of those loaves might be like, have like some pieces missing. Moldy. <laughs> uh, Moldy in parts. Um, but um, but again, it is... Um, it's more, an actual It's more thing. complete than just the raw ingredients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, more on my colossal, angie feelings about this book some other time. <laughs> but um, I'm really excited to see this show. Yeah, the only thing I'm worried about is CGI. And then everything else I'm kind of, like, not worried about. I Or, like, I don't have active worry about. Yeah, um, I know there's a lot of people worried about the fact that a lot of it seems to be, like, brand new and made up. But, I mean, like, again, if you know anything about the stories of the Second Age, there's not a lot to go off of, period. Even if they had the rights to the Silmarillion. So, uh, I think fleshing it out with made-up storylines and... Uh, characters is kind of necessary but i don't mind that so long as they all contribute to those three major themes that tolkien said the delaying and lingering of the elves uh the rise and fall of numenor and the rise of sauron to the new dark lord displacing his old master morgoth as long as everything that's added to the show whether it's scenes of dialogue or entire characters and story arcs i don't care so long as it's contributing to one of those three well, I think um, that's a really good framing out. for us to analyze these episodes. Through. Yeah. So, you know, the next time we 
uh, talk here. It'll be we'll be having seen the first two episodes. Yeah. Yeah, and we're we're gonna shoot for getting our podcast out like pretty soon after those episodes air, um, just to be timely with it. We do have some lag time because we need to edit and and stuff like that. But uh, I, I know that we're planning on recording it like right after we watch them. So uh, we'll see. We might kind of change. We might edit less and just try to get it out there. Well, next week we don't have anything that we're reading. But of course, you know, William, list off some supplementary reading materials for the the diehards out there. So if you want to keep your uh, Tolkien journey going after the Silmarillion, like I've recommended a lot of times, I think you should read the History of Middle-Earth series, um, which pretty much tracks the evolution of Tolkien's mythology from its earliest stages all the way up to the end of his life and his later writings. You know, it starts off with the Book of Lost Tales and then gets into how that evolved into the earlier versions of the Silmarillion. There's the Lays of Beleriand, which has these epic poems specifically around Baron and Luthien and Turin. There's the Lost Road, which is a great book that has a lot of interesting stuff on the earliest versions of the Numenor tale. From there, it kind of gets into the writings of uh, the original drafts of The Lord of the Rings. And then there's The War of the Jewels and Morgoth's Ring, which are a lot of his writings from when he returned to the Silmarillion material after writing The Lord of the Rings. And he started to revise a lot of things. And then there's you know a few other books like The Peoples of Middle-Earth and stuff that you know, just again, sort of flesh out that world a little bit more, um, you know, hit the writing of his appendices and stuff like that. Yeah, again, I, I know a lot of people might dismiss some of this stuff as, oh, it's just earlier drafts and versions of this stuff. And they're not really totally canon to the later writings. But I don't really look at it in a way that his latest writings are the more legitimate. I think it's all legitimate. Um, and I think understanding what changed but also what stayed the same throughout all these iterations is pretty key to understanding really what he was trying to get at and again i think if you just read the silmarillion you're only getting the tip of the iceberg of his lore even though like the lord of the rings and the hobbit compared to the silmarillion are only the tip of that iceberg of those three books yeah um again it just it gets deeper and deeper and you know you can just pour over these works forever and always find something new If you haven't already, please subscribe to Half As Well wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on Twitter at HalfAsWellPod. Or you can check us out on HalfAsWellPodcast.com. I am Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well. Well.